Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon with me, Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. The church celebrates July as the month of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Just consider the infinite value and the power of one drop of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of God, the divine person, Jesus Christ. So, Steve Ray is here with us to discuss how we can even talk about this in human language, given the fact that human language is so limited. Steve Ray leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Rome, and other sites. He converted to Catholicism in 1994 and is the author of Crossing the Tiber, Upon the Rock, and other books. He's the host and producer of the Footprints of God DVD series and has been to the Holy Land more than 180 times. He also writes Bible studies for Catholic Scripture Study International. Visit catholicconvert.com and footprintsofgodpilgrimages.com. Steve, it's great to have you on the program. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Marcus. Thank you very much. I'm on my way to Steubenville to give talks there at the Defending the Faith Conference, but I always make time for you guys and Ave Maria Radio. And we're always honored to have you on this program. You're such a wealth of experience, wisdom, and information. So we have two segments, and we're going to be talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. So give us the origins here, because, you know, Catholics, we're a morbid bunch, aren't we? We're cannibals. We eat, the f- <laughs> we eat flesh and blood. Uh, and in fact, honestly, what we do to the relics of the saints, that, that, that's pretty morbid in and of itself. So, so let's talk about the blood of Jesus Christ. I came from a Protestant background, as you know, I converted in, uh, 28 years ago, and I used to think that very thing. What a morbid bunch of people. <laughs> they always are collecting body parts, and they're doing, you know, drinking the body and blood of Christ, they say, and so on. And actually, the early Christians were accused of the same thing. They were accused of being cannibals right. in the first century, because they said in those secret meetings, they drink the blood of a, of a, of a human being named Jesus Christos. They drink his blood. Well, the reality is, is that when we aren't, are not a bunch of morbid people, we are just engrossed and immersed in history and culture of the Christian faith, and it goes all the way back to the Jewish faith, all the way back to Moses and even beyond. Mm-hmm. And we are just the heirs, and we are inheritance of all of the biblical history and all the people of God and the salvation story from the very beginning. And those who reject what we do, they're the ones that are in discontinuity. Right. with that wonderful history that we are part of. So this whole thing, really, of, of the body and blood begins all the way back in the Old Testament, of course, when God created. He said that there's, if anybody sheds the blood by their by man, his blood shall be shed, because the life is in the blood. Right. And so from the very beginning, it was made clear that God made mankind, and the blood was very special. It was in the blood that was so important. And mm-hmm. we could see it all the way back in Leviticus. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, for I have given it to you upon the altar, the atonement of the souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement yep. the reason of the life. So it, it goes all the way back to the very beginning. Yep, and that's that's Leviticus 17.11. I, I actually just finished writing my dissertation on exactly this, blood sacrifice and covenant renewal. So uh, I just want to lay out this premise for those who are listening. There can be no covenant without liturgy. There can be no liturgy without sacrifice. And sacrifice always entails blood sacrifice. So why is that, Steve? Why, why I mean, as you, you just quoted Levit- Leviticus 17.11, Yahweh makes it very explicit. The blood is to be poured upon the altar. What is it about blood? I mean, why, why are we so obsessed with this, this bodily fluid? Well, it's the bodily fluid that flows through our bodies that gives life. And I think the earliest people, the ancients, when they saw somebody bleeding, 
and the blood came out, they died. Mm-hmm. And it was assumed, and quite rightly so assumed, that that is what it's causing the life in the body. And it really is, because you put the life, the blood has the red blood cells, the white blood cells. It's amazing. I mean, the technology of blood is so amazing. I just had some procedures done on my knees where they spun the blood and took certain platelets out and put it back in my knees. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm talking to the doctor about the blood, and he was telling me about the, the amazing fluid that runs through our body. And if it drains out, we're dead. And if we want to get back alive, they, they can give us transfusions and, and resupply it. But the blood is such an amazing thing. And the sacrifices we have at the altars of the Catholic Church, we have what Jesus said, this is the blood of my covenant, the new covenant. And so then you ask yourself, what's the blood of the old covenant? Because if there's the new covenant and this is my blood of the new covenant, well, then you ask, what's the blood of the old covenant? So you just did your dissertation on this, but you go back to Exodus Exodus. 28. Yep. Yes, and and there you've got, it says that the young men brought the bulls, and they poured the blood of the bulls into bulls. Now, you know, you've got to ask yourself, how in the world did these guys, in the middle of all these people, get the blood of bulls? into bulls. A bull is like two-ton animal. How do you wrestle that thing to the (laughs) ground and get that blood into bulls? And then after they get it, it says Moses takes that blood, and as you know, uh, I lived on a farm, and we used to slaughter animals and kill them, like chickens and so on, and the blood, as soon as it comes out, it turns into clots. It coagulates, and Mm -hmm. it stinks, and flies come. Oh, you know, and so it says that Moses took the blood that was in the bowl and he splashed it and threw it on all of the people. Mm-hmm. They didn't even have showers to clean up <laughs> afterwards, you know. And then so you can just imagine these blood clots flying through the crowds of people and they're splattering on all these people. I, when I think of the blood of the New Covenant, I think the deacons that have to clean up after Mass are a whole lot better off than those poor Levites. Exactly. The covenant. I, I tell my students the, that all the time, that we have it a lot better because Jesus Christ <laughs> said and did what he did. If not, whenever Father blesses you with holy water, it would have to be blood instead. Yes, exactly. And it's still distributed, the blood of the New Covenant is still distributed, but it's not splashed on it. We're giving it in a chalice, and we can drink it, and it makes it much better. So, yes, this is the whole history, and we as Catholics, we're the ones that carry on this tradition. We're the ones that continue to understand the importance of blood and what it means. And when sin came into the world, the first sacrifice that took place, the first blood that was shed was in the Garden of Eden, because they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God says, no, because of this, because you have caused a sin that has brought destruction and chaos into my world, and death is a result of sin, now something else has to die to make atonement yep. for you. And he had to kill animals to give proper skins, proper coverings, coverings from Adam and Eve. So that idea of sacrifice began way back in the Garden of Eden, even mm-hmm. before the book of Leviticus. Yep, and for those of you who don't know, this is tradition that harkens back to the Mishnah. Rabbinic tradition has always held that Yahweh performed the first blood sacrifice, and it became a means and modus of showing pedagogically, if you will, for Adam to continue this this liturgical act of blood sacrifice for the sake of renewal of the relationship between man and God every time man sins. So... <clears throat> Uh, let, let's let's focus on a particular aspect then, Steve. In you, you quoted Leviticus seventeen eleven. In Leviticus seventeen fourteen, Yahweh makes very clear: you shall not eat the blood or or drink the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is in its blood. 
And yet here in the New Covenant, we eat the body and drink the blood. So why has there been this dynamic paradigm shift? Well, it's because a lot of paradigm shifts took place with the New Covenant. For example, you couldn't make any images of God. You couldn't make images at all. But then in Colossians, it says that Jesus came down. He is the visible image of the invisible God. So mm-hmm. there was a tremendous titanic shift there where you couldn't make images, and now it's allowed, because God himself, in a way you could say, he broke his own rules, didn't he? He said, don't make any images of anything above the earth, or on the earth, or below the earth, and yet he makes an image of his Son, the body of Jesus Christ that came down and took on flesh. He says he is the visible image of the invisible God. So a lot of things shifted there. And we know that we're also not taking a bull and killing a bull and drinking the blood. This is sacramental, the sacramental body and blood of Christ. And the Christians were accused of being cannibals, and they resisted those arguments and said, no, we are not cannibals at all. And you are what you eat, and Mm -hmm. you are what you drink. And so in a sense, you you couldn't... The beauty of this is that Jesus gives us his body and his blood to eat, in a sense that we become him. We become partakers of the divine nature. If we are what we eat and we eat him, we're bringing him into ourselves, then we are becoming like him. Yep. And on a simplistic level, it would be easy to say it's because God himself commanded us to do so. He said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, which you and I can continue to explore uh, in John chapter 6 in a bit. Uh, We're talking to Steve Ray, uh, who leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Rome, and other sites, and prolific author uh, of books such as Crossing the Tiber, Upon the Rock, and the Gospel of St. John. So we've got about three minutes in this segment, Steve, and we're going to continue talking with you in the next segment. But let's let's dive into John chapter 6. Christ doesn't mince words. I'm sorry, pardon the terrible pun. When he, <laughs> when he says, eat my body, drink my blood, and he even goes so far as to alter the severity of the words. Yes, when he's talking about, I am the bread which came down from heaven. By the way, my favorite place to talk about John chapter 6 is in Capernaum, where Jesus spoke those words at the synagogue. I've given this a talk there on uh, on the Eucharist uh, over 80 times to people. But Jesus, he really does, he he could have backed off, couldn't he? He could Mm -hmm. have said, folks... Oh, you know, I'm only speaking symbolically, like the Baptists say. You know, the Baptists say they're 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 right, folks. I'm I'm only speaking symbolically. He didn't do that. There was fifteen thousand disciples walked away from him that day yep. because he said, "You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood." And they said, "This is a hard saying. Who can accept this?" And they walked away. And when I was a Baptist, I walked away with them. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic Church has always stayed loyal to the words of Jesus. And Jesus changes the words. When he says to drink my, eat my flesh, it's the word uh, that means just normal eating. But when he says, changes it to you must eat my flesh, he uses a word called trogo in Greek, and it means to gnaw, to munch, and to chew. It's like, mm-hmm. rawr, like a dog chewing on a bone. Yep. And he really ups the ante in his discussion, and I know we're running out of time, but he really does. He doesn't back down. He, he doubles down. And he said, this is really what... And I think Peter said, Lord, we have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but but if, we know if we stay with you long enough, you'll explain it to us. So you're the one with the ter- words of eternal life. So we're going to stay with you, and we know you'll help us understand this down the road. <laughs> you know, I, I always... I, I do a lot of talks on, on Peter specifically, and uh, it, it's not so much a defense, but more a presentation of the reality of who Peter was. And... Um, 
this particular verse, you know, when, when he says, I mean, Lord, to whom shall we go? It's almost as if him and the apostles had go- gone off to the corner and, 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 you know, kind of talked to each other. It's like, hey, <laughs> this is getting bad. Uh, what do we do? And then they decided, well, okay, we can't go anywhere else. And then he goes off to Jesus and goes, Lord, to whom shall we go? We talked about it. There's no one else. You have the message of eternal life. <laughs> I love that idea of them going off and consulting a little bit. Because when I give the talk, I always say, Peter, he says, Lord, we have no idea what you're talking about, eating flesh and blood. And, but, but we have no idea what you're talking about. But one thing we know is you're not from around here. You're a space alien. You came from, from another world to come down and tell us things that we could never know with our five senses. And even though this is totally seems nonsense to us, we can't even drink blood like Leviticus says. And we can't, we're not allowed to be cannibals. But you tell us we have to do it, so we're going to follow you because we know you know what you're talking about. Right. Talking to Steve Ray, who leads Pilgrimages to the Holy Land and prolific author of Crossing the Tiber Upon the Rock and the Gospel of Jesus, Gospel of St. John. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. Stay with us as we continue the conversation with Steve Ray on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Crescent in the Afternoon with me, Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta as Al goes about the business of running Ave Maria Radio and Ave Maria Communications. Pray for us in all the work we do. I've been talking to Steve Ray, who is a pilgrimage leader to the Holy Land and prolific author of Crossing the Tiber, Upon the Rock, Upon This Rock, and the Gospel of St. John. And we're talking about the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which is celebrated as a devotion in the month of July. So, Steve, Let's go back to earlier you quoted Exodus 24 verse 8. This is the blood of the covenant. And, you know, Moses does this morbid thing of of he takes the blood, he sprinkles it upon the altar and he sprinkles it upon the people. Jesus then employs those exact same words, but he adds the word new. So the blood of the new covenant. And we see this in Matthew 26, 28. We see this in Luke 22, 20. Behold, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood of the new covenant. Why are those words so crucial? Why, why does he establish it in that paralleled a way? Well, I think that there's a context flowing. The Old Testament, which obviously Jesus and the Jews would have never called it the Old Testament, they called it the Law and the Prophets, mm-hmm. never, uh, you know, most of them never understood that there were going to be 27 books added after the fact uh, of the Prophets. But they called it the, the Law and the Prophets, and the continuity there was, like you said, God, create, God did the first blood sacrifice in the Garden, and then Abel, he, offered, he also offered lambs, and then Noah, when he got off the ark, he had taken seven of the clean animals, and the first thing he does when he's off the ark is he makes the sacrifice of those animals, those clean animals, and then Moses establishes the Passover lamb and all of the other sacrifices, and these are all looking forward to, they're called types. They are, they are prefiguring. It's kind of like a black-and-white picture to tell you something of what's going to happen in the future, but you don't see it in its beautiful technicolor white screen yet. <laughs> Jesus then comes along, and I see Jesus as the conductor between the old and the new. And in a way, he, he points to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament throws up a musical theme, say it's like an orchestra, and it's the theme of the blood of the bulls. And then Jesus throws the baton over to the New Testament, and all of a sudden you hear the blood of the New Covenant, and all of a sudden the woodwinds and the flutes and the, the uh, platoons start going crazy, developing that theme. And you see the old, what's in the Old Testament kind of like in shadow or prefigured, or you could say in black and white, all of a sudden through Jesus now in the New Covenant, all of it comes into a 
technicolor, and, and it's beautiful, and it's all you could see it now through Christ as you look back at the Old Testament. And everything we do in the New Testament came from the Old Testament, in a sense, the foundation. Yep. So the whole idea of blood sacrifice and, and Jesus actually then becoming the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, who dies and sheds his blood. And like, you, like we know in the Old Testament, you had to put the blood of the lamb on the lintel and doorpost of the house, which is the wood, vertical and horizontal beams of wood on the house. In the New Covenant, the new lamb of God also has the blood on the vertical and horizontal beams of yep. the wood. Yep. But it's of the cross. Amen. Amen. And, you know, I also came from a uh, Protestant background. I came from Pentecostalism. I was an, I was an uh, Assemblies uh, of God preacher. And we did not have a semblance of sacramentality whatsoever, which is funny because no. every so often my pastors would, would collect together handkerchiefs and oil and they'd pray over it. And then they'd go, OK, now take this home to your sick family members. And if you touch this upon them, they will be healed. And in hindsight, there's a kind of sacramental understanding to that process that they didn't employ. So going back to, say, uh, Catechism uh, 2260, for example, you know, where it says the Old Testament always considered blood a sacred sign of life, but this teaching remains necessary for all time. So as, as you mentioned... Jesus becomes this conductor between the old and the new. As Augustine says, the new, is, uh, uh, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Christ becomes right. this, this grand revelator, if you will, and uh, if I may build upon your, your orchestra analogy, uh, as, as Christ reaches the culmination of his work in Passion, Death, and Resurrection, that's when Tchaikovsky's canons start going, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so absolutely. So then the catechism goes on to tell us that the the church f- receives her birth, her, her her wellspring, if you will, flowing forth from the blood and water that comes from the side of Christ as He hangs upon the cross. Yes, this this is a beautiful thing, Marcus. I love to talk about this because if we again we go back to the Garden of Eden where there was the first blood sacrifice, but if you look back there, there was Adam was in a garden. And he was at a tree of life, and he brought about death. Mm -hmm. But at that tree in the garden, God said he needs a bride. And so he puts Adam to sleep. He cuts Adam's side open, takes part of his body out, and from that he fashions a bride, and then wakes Adam up. And Adam says, oh, my goodness, is she beautiful, is the first poetry. Bone (laughs) of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Oh, my goodness, is she gorgeous. He loved his wife. And now... But then there was sin, and it brought uh, devastation. But now we go to a new garden in the New Covenant, because John tells us, in my book on John, I go into this in great detail, the book of John tells us that the cross was in a garden. How unusual for an execution to be in a garden. And now we have a new Adam, who is Jesus, and he enters into a new garden, and he is put to sleep at a tree. And God cuts open his side with a lamp. And part of his body comes out the blood and water, which are the sacraments of the initiation into the Church. And he takes that blood and his water, and he creates from the side of the new Adam his new bride called the Church. He wakes Jesus up in the garden from the tomb, and Jesus loves his Church. If you ever feel like you're not loved, just remember this story. God loves you. He, you came out of his side. Yep. He, God created you out of the side of his son. And when he woke up, he says, my bride is lovely. 
And so you've got the blood there, the blood in the water coming out of the side of Christ, which then it gives birth to the church. What yeah. a beautiful analogy. And then we have that blood at the altar to remind us and that we could be partakers of that blood. And so, you know, probably when you were a Protestant to a Pentecostal, you used to sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but, but, but the, the blood, blood of Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What can take, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the first song I learned how to play on my harmonica when I was a boy. <laughs> but you know, but the funny thing is, I like to ask Protestants, now where is the blood? When the blood came out of his veins, it went down the cross, down the Calvary, and into the Dead Sea with the next couple of big storms. Where is the blood that you say that you wash in? We have the blood in the Catholic Church. Amen. We still have the blood of the New Testament. On the altars of our church, we have the precious blood of Christ. And when Jesus died, he is God in the flesh. Just think of what one drop of the blood of God, how it and how valuable is one drop of God's blood as he came down to earth and he shed it for us. That's why we celebrate the blood of Christ. And, and the way Peter says it in the, in the epistle of Peter, he said, the precious blood of Christ. It's mm. not just the blood of Christ. He said in 1 Peter 1, nine, the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without spot or blemish. The New Testament is full of talking about the blood of Christ, and the fathers of the Church, they begin to echo the same thing, and like an orchestra again, they began to play the same tunes, and the fathers of the Church are just replete yep. with, with a veneration and a love for the blood of Christ, which was shed for our sins. Absolutely. So none of this is contained in a vacuum. I'm talking to Steve Ray, who leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Rome, and other sites, prolific author of Crossing the Tiber Upon This Rock, the Gospel of St. John, amongst other works. So none of none of what you're saying is existing in a vacuum because the church has been echoing this mystery for the past 2000 years and all of this has has ser- further served to adound to our adoration of Christ as the lamb of God. So I'd I'd like to as you've mentioned, you know, the 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 pouring of the blood and stuff, I'd like to lead our attention to the book of the Revelation because in that book, more than any other book, there's one title that appears more than anything else for Jesus Christ. And many would think it would be victor yeah. or king, but actually, it's Lamb of God. And, yes, and you, you would think it would be the Lion of Judah. Right, right. At you know, the end of time, the Lion of Judah is going to come roaring through history, and he's going to take over and kill the devil. But it's not the Lion of Judah. That's only used one time as a title. Thirty times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. And one of them is specific. It says in, in Revelation 5, that Jesus was standing uh, is a Lamb of God, is the Lamb standing, those slain. As if he has been slain, right. Yes, and one of my favorite paintings of all time, Marcus, is called The Adoration of the Lamb. Oh, mine too, John Van Eyck. Yes, exactly. And the lamb, the the big sheep actually, standing on the altar, and his throat is slit, and the blood is gushing out into a chalice on the altar. And this is what God sees every day. It's an eternal event before God. When God, I like to say that when God wakes up in the morning, and he wakes his eyes, and he yawns, and he gets his coffee, the first thing he sees is the sacrifice, the Passover lamb, which is why when we walk into our Catholic churches, we have the crucifix, because we're seeing the same eternal sacrifice that God the Father sees every morning when he wakes up. Amen. And and you're completely right. This is what God the Father sees because uh, Hebrews 8 verse 2 would tell us that 
Christ continues to serve as the priest in the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly Jerusalem. So this is the sacrifice he's offering. He's offering himself, his own blood, his own body, for the remission of the sins of all mankind ad infinitum. And where is that blood? We find it nowhere else than in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, as transubstantiated in the words of Christ himself. So... There's a practical application to the blood of Christ as well. So one of my favorite verses is Revelation twelve eleven, And they conquered the world by the blood of the Lamb and the power of their testimony because they loved not their own lives even unto death. So the blood of Christ can empower us to a life of witness and martyria. So talk to us about that, Steve. We've got about three minutes. Oh, well, and about what? About witnessing, uh, witnessing to Jesus Christ after being nourished and empowered by his blood. Yes, it, it empowers us, and, and it says that the martyrs, they were saved at the end because they, did, they didn't love their lives, even in the shedding of their own blood. Mm-hmm. We, 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 I did a talk yesterday for a group in Wisconsin about martyrdom and how we, the only way we're going to convert our world is if we're willing to embrace martyrdom like the early church did. Amen. And we have, to, we have to say to ourselves, if we really, the world is not going to pay any attention to us unless we really, really, really believe it. And we really believe it enough to die for it. That is what how the early Christians in 300 years turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ, is because they believed it enough to actually die for it as martyrs. The Romans said, how can they die like that? Look at these people. How can you say they're criminals? They die with such nobility. Yep. And the early Christians said that our, the blood of the Christians, when you, you spill our blood in the sand of your arena, it's like seed. And from that blood that you spilled, more Christians will grow like the crops of the Church. Amen. It's the blood. And we, early Christians, were not afraid to shed their blood for Jesus because they knew that their bodies would be raised from the dead at the end of time. Mm. And they gave their life for Christ like he gave their life for them, and it brought them eternal life. And that's the whole end of the story. Amen. And, you know, I, I love that you, you tied us back to that because today's gospel on the memorial of Saints um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is about Jesus Christ being the resurrection and the life, and that he exactly. who believes in him will never die. You know, uh, St. Athanasius in On the Incarnation, chapter 6, I think it's in the earlier part of chapter 6, he says exactly that the early Christians were not afraid of death. They ran into death. They ran to embrace death. And that's one of the greatest witnesses for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. He said when uh, Ignatius was going to Rome, tied to the Roman soldiers, chained to them, and he's going to be fed to the lion, he wrote to the Romans ahead of time, those who had some influence, and said, please do not stop my martyrdom. Those lions, their jaws, will grind me into the precious blood of Christ, and my blood will be shed, and those lions are my way to God. Amen. What a way, you know, we, we have, in the last two years of COVID, we see everybody always caring about safety and protecting our bodies. And the early Christians, that wasn't their primary goal. Their primary goal was not safety and protection and trying to live as long as I stretch my life out. The early Christians, they said, yes, we'll live for Christ. Yes, we're not going to be stupid. We want to be safe, but we're going to pour out our blood for Jesus Christ that he gave his life for us. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us today, Steve. I've been talking to Steve Ray, uh, who leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Rome, uh, and other places across the world. He's a prolific author of, author of Crossing the Tiber and the Gospel of St. John. We ask you to continue to stay with us as we round off the hour with me, Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon.